Go ahead and pull out your message notes. I'm excited about this morning. Uh, this message is really something I have lived out my adult life. Uh, really felt like God placed this message in my heart in a real way. We're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. Really felt the strong presence of God in the first service. I'm asking for God to speak to your heart. Uh, you know, as, as a pastor, uh, I can say things, but it's not really about me saying it. It's about the Holy Spirit dropping it into your heart and us being receptive to what God would speak to us, uh, not only individually, but corporately. And I just wanted to pray this morning as we started off. Father, I pray that every person that is in this place, every person that's watching online, God, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to drop the word in their heart on good soil. God, open up their heart to receive a word that you have placed in me that I've lived out. And God, I pray that it would change them like it's changed me. And Lord, I pray that the fruit of this word would be produced in their life. They would not just be hearers, but doers also. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Now pull out your message notes. We're, we're going to dive in. Uh, the First Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. I want to share a little bit of the backdrop. Uh, Samuel, in this story, is a judge for the nation of Israel. Now a judge was someone that was both a political and a religious leader. Uh, Israel didn't have kings. Uh, the, God established himself as the king, but as God being the king, he needed a judge that would then go and communicate to the people, someone that would be his spokesperson. And so Samuel is that man. He's living in the days where Israel had judges that worked on God's behalf. Now at this time, Israel uh, is in battle with the Philistines and they've just won. Now if you know anything about the Old Testament, Israel never fully wiped out the Philistines. It was, it was constantly back and forth. You would see them get victory, and then they would fall back into defeat. Uh, if you remember the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was a Philistine. So David conquered them, and then they would live for God, and then the king would turn away from God, and the Philistines would conquer them. This is, in this story, one of the moments where the Israelites have defeated the Philistines. In verse 12, it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer. So it's, a, it's an altar that he named Ebenezer. And really he's saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. How many know that you are where you are in your life because the Lord has helped you? The old timers used to say, If the Lord had not been on my side... You know what I'm talking about. I can't have a charismatic background and be, come on, somebody. If the Lord hadn't have been on my side, you would be in jail. Come on, somebody. I mean, no, you'd still be up in the club. You probably wouldn't even be up right now laying next to someone whose name you don't even know on drugs. Come on, hello. I mean, at the end of the day, where would you be? Some of you would be dead had it not been for God on your side. The grace and the power of God. So one of the things I love about this church is that we want you to come as you are. I'll never forget a day someone showed up. We were having church in the cafeteria, and Pastor Brian comes and taps me on the shoulder and said, Pastor Jim, you're going to love it. I said, what's going on? He said, there's three people in the back, and they smell like they just smoked a reefer. Come on, pub, pub, give. He said, I knew you'd want to know because we love when sinners come to the house of God. We're going to love them. We're not going to judge them. We got a spot for you. The place that you should be, you're at. And so we love the fact that we understand, had it not been for God on my side, I wouldn't be where I'm at 
today. Look, even if you're not where you want to be, how many know I'm not where I used to be? that we can really celebrate that God has us in this place today. And so verse 13 says, So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. And, And I love this next phrase, throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. Now, what it does not say is that they destroyed the Philistines, but what it does say is that their enemies stopped attacking them. So how many of you would love for that to be the story of your life, that throughout your lifetime, that pressure that you've been feeling, that attack that you've been experiencing, that God's hand would be against the enemies of your life? That's what they're experiencing right here. Just God's hand is staying back the enemy that is in their life. Verse 14 says, The towns from Ekron and Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel, they were restored to Israel. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So not only was the hand of the Lord against the Philistines, what we see is that there were a couple of towns the Philistines had taken from Israel that Israel got back. They were returned back to Israel in this moment. And so I I want you to know that God has territory for you to take in your life. You need to know it's more than just getting saved and experiencing salvation and an eternity with God. But God has territory in this life, on this planet, in this place that He wants you to take. He wants you to take some territory in your family. He wants you to take some territory in your business. He wants you to take some territory in ministry and in education and in finances. That we're not just here to exist, but God has got some territory that He wants us to take. And we've got to be careful and be on guard because the enemy wants to steal from us what God has given to us. And I believe for some of us, that's what's taken place, that we've allowed the enemy to take some of our territory. We've allowed the enemy to encroach on the boundary lines of our lives. But I'm declaring today that each and every one of you are going to take back what the devil has stolen. That 2019 is your year for the take back. That whatever he has stolen, that you're aware of it and you're saying, God, no more will he steal. In fact, I want back everything that he's stolen and not just want it back. I want it back sevenfold. It reminds me, I've been singing this old song. You know, my background's charismatic and, uh, you know, I never really liked the song, but I've been singing it this whole week and it's, uh, you know, I went to the enemy's camp and I... Took back what he stole from me. Anybody know that song? Took back what he stole from me. Come on, I didn't say it was a good singer, but it's been a very stole from me. Come on, I went to the enemy's camp. Went to the enemy's camp. And I took back what he stole from me. He's under my feet. He's under my feet. And then it goes on. Satan is under my feet. Woo! <laughs> I mean, come on, sometimes we got to go back to the oldies, right? There's some truth in that, whether you like the song or not. There was a generation that was raised up that knew the devil was under their feet. My concern is we got a church full of people that think the devil is over us, the devil's tougher than us, the devil's stronger than us. No, baby, the devil is under your feet. <clears throat> We got to declare that. We got to speak it. We're going to get everything back. Look, some of you lost your peace. You got to get your peace back. 
Some of you lost your marriage. You got to get your marriage back. Some of you lost your finances. It's time to get your finances back. It's time to get the relationships back that the devil has tried to steal from your life. Let me give you a little more context. So then Samuel, here in this story, he's putting some stones together. He builds this Ebenezer. And really he's saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. Now, before this, what you need to know is that the Israelites were actually slaves to the Philistines. The Philistines had defeated Israel, and they actually took the Ark of the Covenant away from the Philistines, I mean, from the Israelites. Uh, Now, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, the presence of God in the Old Covenant dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant. So this is where God dwelled with his people. He would be in this place where the people were located. The Ark of the Covenant would be there. But I need you to know that was Old Testament, Old Covenant. Jesus doesn't live in a box. He's not sitting in a shelf. He's in this room and he's in our lives. Can I get an amen? But you can imagine having the presence of God dwell in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. And in this story, 20 years prior, the Philistines actually send the Ark of the Covenant back to the Israelites because God puts uh, a plague over the Philistines when they had the Ark of the Covenant in the camp, which is a whole different story. And their God, Bel and Dagon actually fell down before the presence of God, which is a whole nother story. So the Philistines send the presence of God back to the people of God and And here's what's interesting in this story is that they've got the presence of God, but they're still living in slavery. The presence of God is dwelling. They're seeing the presence of God. They, they, they know it's near, but yet they still are bound by their enemies. And I wonder if that's not some of you, how you feel this morning. You experience the presence of God. You come to church. But the truth is, if you were to examine your life, you feel like you're stuck. You feel like you've been enslaved to some things that you just can't seem to defeat in your life. You may be asking God, I don't understand, how come... You don't push back my enemies. How come you don't bring me victory like you brought the Israelites? How come I don't have an Ebenezer moment? How come I don't have a thus far, saith the Lord, moment? What's going on in my life? Some of you may be even saying, look, I've done that Christian thing. I've done that worship thing. I've done that prayer thing, that fasting thing. But it just didn't work for me. See, they had the presence of God but they had not experienced the victory over the Philistines. And here's why, here's why. Every promise from God is yes and amen. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. So that means, look, when God gives promises, I mean, God is faithful to fulfill those promises, Not one of his promises has ever failed. God will never not do what he said he would do. Are you with me? Do you believe that? Okay, but, in fact, everybody say, however, you can't have the promise without the process. Let me say it like this. You always have a process to get to the promise that God has given you in your life. I mean, every miracle that's ever been shown in the Bible, there were things that had to be done. When you look at the blind man that Jesus healed, it's interesting. Jesus spits in the ground, gets mud, rubs it on the blind man's eye, and then he tells him to go and bathe in the pool of Siloam. 
So now, let me, let me ask you this. Had he not gone to bathe where Jesus said to bathe, do you think he would have been healed? No, but the power of God placed the mud on his eyes. Does that matter? No, why? Because there's always instruction before the blessing. God wants us to step out in faith. God wants us to do our part when then he can do what's his part. It's the natural and the supernatural. And when we look at the Bible, it's full of stories where God does this. He partners with us in the miracle. And the the issue is never can God do it. The issue is never will God do it. The issue is never does God want to do it. The issue is am I willing to obey the process? Am I willing to obey the instruction that precedes the miracle? And you got to know there's always instruction. I mean, think about Lazarus. Uh, You know, he's four days dead in the tomb. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, no, don't worry, Mary, Martha, I got this. But then he gives instruction. He tells the people of the town, he says, roll away the stone from the tomb. Well, what do you mean, Jesus? He's dead. It stinks. It's four days. He's starting to decay. Are you sure? Jesus says, roll away the stone. Let me tell you, Lazarus would have never been resurrected had they not rolled away the stone. There takes faith in operation that it doesn't make sense. Like, we've never seen this. Is there someone that can do that? I don't understand if you would have done this before. And we've got to say, no, I'm not worried about the doubt. I've got to follow the instruction. Here's what you got to understand, that God's promises are optional and conditional. Optional by what I mean is whether or not you choose to obey what God wants you to do. And conditional by he's got instructions. He tells each and every one of us, this is what I want you to do. Speaks to our hearts. Speak through a message like this. Speaks to friends. But every time there's a miracle that we're pursuing, that we feel like, God, I'm holding on to a promise, I guarantee there's instructions he's asking us to obey. So think about it. The ark can be there, and you still serve the Philistines. You're still in slavery. I mean, that's that's a a mind-blowing thought. And in today's culture, it's a little bit of a challenge, right? I mean, we live in a culture of social media, and, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and, and, and I like it, hate it kind of thing, you know what I mean? How many ever feel better after looking at Instagram? No. You're like, man, my marriage is terrible. Man, my kids are terrible. Man, my church is terrible. Man, my life is terrible. Why? Because everybody's highlight reel is being, being judged by my real life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Who Instagrams a bad hair day? Come on, somebody. Who Instagrams that moment that your kids defy you and go off on you? Ain't nobody Instagramming that. Come on, somebody. No, no, it's all the wonderful things, knowing that they just got in a fight, but they got a pretty picture of their family and kids. You lie. You lie. And here's the challenge with the church, right? We judge our blessing with other people's blessing. Like, God, you're blessing them. God, they got a business that went off the ground. It seems like you just love them better. They must be more spiritually mature. God, there must be favor, favor, favor on them. What we got to do is stop judging their blessing with our blessing. Why don't we start judging their level of obedience with our level of obedience? See, you don't know what kind of hell they walk through to get to the blessing that they're experiencing. You don't know the late nights they stayed up praying and fasting, the weeks they just served when their family was falling apart. They showed up early to serve on a Sunday. Their, their marriage is falling apart. Their finances are falling apart. You don't even know that they walked to this campus to help serve because they got a smile on their face and you wonder why God blessed them with a brand new car. God, you blessed them, but you didn't bless me. Well, you didn't do what they did to get the blessing that they got. 
And look, I just got to tell I'm not trying to be rude. I'm not trying to make, make you feel bad, but, but we have to be real careful that we're not judging their blessing. For, no, no. What did they do? What price did they pay? What sacrifice did they give? What is it in their life that they did that got them to the promise of God? You didn't know the times they gave sacrificially. Said no to some things because God told them to do something else. Times they sold things they loved. See, we never know the price people paid. Times they came in and worshiped on a Sunday morning when they didn't feel like worshiping. All we see is the blessing. All we see is the blessing. But I want you to know that if you're willing to work, if you're willing to do what God asks you to do, you can get the blessing of God. God's not a respecter of person, but God is a respecter of principle. And if you obey the principles, if you follow the process and do what he said, you'll be able to access the promise that God has for your life. I mean, think about this whole conundrum with Israel. What a horrible way to live. The power of Almighty God is right in front of you. The Ark of the Covenant is there, and I am a slave to the Philistine. God didn't design you to be a slave here. He has saved you. He has set you free. And God wants us to walk in freedom in our lives. But if we're going to get what we read they got, we got to do what they did to get it. And look, there's three things that Samuel instructs them to do, and I want to share on those just briefly. For, you, you know, if you're going to get your Ebenezer, you're going to get your victory, you're going to have the hand of God stayed uh, of the enemies off of your life, you got to do what they did so that you can experience the promises that God has. I believe this is a season... And I felt it from the beginning of the year for you to take territory. I believe it's a season for our church to take territory. You know, that's really even what this Heart for the House offering is all about, that, that we're going from this portable to permanent, advancing the kingdom of God. And, and really, when that takes place, it happens individually before it happens corporately. And anytime God asks us to give... He's never worried about the amount or the dollar. It's not about the money. It's always about the heart. It's always about our heart. Look at, let's read in verse 3 of chapter 7. It says, so Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you're returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he'll deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bells and Asherahs and serve the Lord only. So Samuel was telling them, look, I need you to examine your heart. I need you to look at your life. And you've been enslaved, even though God's presence in there, it hadn't been an issue of the position of the ark. It's an issue of the position of your heart. That you can be all in the presence, but your heart is not in alignment with God's. And so we've got to break the barriers that would cause us to be out of alignment with God. And, and really, so he's addressing idols. And as a church, you know, in here, I don't think anybody's got an idol on a shelf that you're bowing down to and worshiping. But how many know we can have idols in our lives? Someone says, well, what's an idol? An idol is anything that is exalted above God. Anything that takes the position of God. How many know your relationships can take the position of God? Well, how do you know? When God says to do something and you don't because you're afraid of what others think, that relationship has become an idol in your life. Come on, somebody, I know. 
with your children. God says, I want you to do this with your children. You're like, God, I would, but I'm afraid. God, I would, but what would happen? Then your children have now become an idol to your relationship with God. Why? Because you put them over the obedience that God's asking you to do. Maybe it's your career. Look, God, you gave me this career. You gave me this gift. And God's saying, I want you to do something different. I want you to, and you're like, I will, but I got to get there. And God's like, no, no, baby. I'm the one that gives you the ability to get there. So you're putting this above me. You're never going to get there until you put me here. And so your career can become this idol. Your savings account, your investment accounts can become an idol. Why? Because it's like, I'm good because I got money in the bank. No, no, God is our safety. God is our security. God is the one that's recession-proof, not your bank accounts. And you just got to be real careful that we don't allow things to get into the position of God. And if it has, you just repent. You say, God, I'm going to remove those things in my life. I'm not going to allow it to get into the place where you are supposed to be. Look, we're talking about giving and generosity. The first place to start is not in your bank account. It's in your heart. And it's always interesting to me when someone will say, God just wants your money. You know, it's all God wants is is your money. I mean, no, that's such an interesting statement to me. Uh, Did you know that want is actually not even in God's vocabulary? I mean, can you imagine God saying, I want something? I mean, God is whatever he needs. He is the great I am, and he doesn't want anything. He is, he's God. Yeah. I mean, just imagine the conversation in heaven going something like this. Whoa, Gabriel, come see you, homeboy. Come here, come here. What? Have you seen that bank account? My God. They have gotten it so large and so big. If we could just get a little piece of that, we might be able to feed some hungry children in the world. Can you imagine God saying that? When would we ever imagine that what we have, God would need to do what God wants to do? You say, well, what is it all about? It's all about your heart. Giving is all about God stretching our faith, and then what he's doing is he is exposing our hearts. What's on the inside? Is God really first, or are there other priorities? Is God really where I say he is, or are there other things that come before him? It's all about your heart. And realizing this, that what God put in my hand, if he asked me to give, how many know God can fill my hand back up again? That's faith. Yeah, but it took me a lot. No, no, it wasn't you. It was all God. And if we remember it was all God's, then it's all his. Because this is reality. If God gets your heart, God gets your stuff. Look, let's continue. Verse 5, it says, Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel to Mitzvah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they assembled at Mitzvah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have all sinned against the Lord. So what are they doing? They're examining their hearts. They're saying, God, look, we sinned. There are things that we put above you and in front of you. And it's interesting that when God exposes your heart, He's not trying to shame you. He's not trying to condemn you. He's not trying to make you feel less than. What God is trying to do is bring healing to the place that is dysfunctional. So he exposes it so that he can heal it. And so all we have to do is just say, God, I'm sorry. God, I repent for this area that you brought in front of me, the area of my life that has gone before you. I repent. And that's what the Israelites do. And then it says, look, they, they assembled. 
It's kind of like us assembling today, and we've come to bring our best gift before the Lord at our heart for the house offering. These, the, these Israelites have assembled. They've, they've come together, and it says they drew water and they poured it out. Think about this. They drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. Now, I thought this was a little bit odd. You know, when you read the story, you're like, that's, that's a little bit odd. I mean, can you imagine us coming to church with a cup of water, all of us, and we're just praising God, and you just start to pour out your water like, woo, all right, let the river flow. Oh, come on, somebody. It's a little weird, huh, right? Nobody thinks that's weird. You think it's totally normal. Don't do it in here, please, because we have to clean it up and we get in trouble. Don't do it. It's just a little weird. And so it's a little odd. So you go back to like a story where this happens again, and you can begin to see a precedent of what's taking place. And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm going to paraphrase the story. It's the story of Elijah, and he challenges the prophets of Baal. If you're new to Christianity, I'll try to tell it as best I can. You can go back and look it up. Um, He challenges these false prophets to a duel. And he says, look, we're going to make a sacrifice to our gods. You sacrifice to your gods. I'm going to sacrifice to my God. And whichever God consumes the sacrifice with fire from heaven, that's the real God. And so he gathers all the nation of Israel because they've been falling away from God. He wants them to see, look, our God is the real God. We're going to do a challenge. And so they all come to this mountain and uh, gather together. And it's interesting. They start sacrificing to their God and nothing happens. And Elijah, be- Elijah begins to taunt them. Uh, anybody, you, you know, in that crazy, like he's taunting, hey, where's your God? He must be sleeping. He must be texting. Maybe he's watching Avengers. I mean, I don't know what your God is doing, but he's clearly busy. Uh, I saw Sunday morning, all those people there last weekend. I saw that. I like Elijah. He's a little crazy. He's a little eccentric. Come on. You, you know, he, he wears his belt and he's a hairy man and he, he's kind of bold and brazen and he's taunting them. You know, I, I love it because he's a little bit Christian, a little bit hood. You know what I mean? I think you could change the world with people. A little bit Christian, a little bit hood. You know, it's... It's like, I, I love Jesus, but I still do some things too. You know what I mean? I, I'll cut you. you know, Peter was a little bit hood, you know? Peter, you think about it. They came to arrest Jesus. Peter draws his sword out, cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus like, whoa, 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 hold up, slow down. See, you got to have a knife. Like, I'll cut you. Come on. I mean, so Elijah is kind of this way, a little, little Christian, little hood. And he's, he's mocking them and, 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 and making a display for everyone to see. And, and clearly their God didn't move. So now what he does, he makes it harder for God. He says, I'm going to pour uh, water in a trench. So they dig a trench around the altar. And then he goes to the people and he says, look, we're going to fill this ditch with water. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is where did they get the water? Because if you read a few chapters before, the nation of Israel is actually in a drought. So it's been years since it's rained. So you got Elijah that's pulling the people of God to the mount, to the mountain, and he's he's doing a challenge. He digs a ditch and he says, Look, we're gonna fill this ditch up with water where the, the creek and the river that runs down the base of the mountain would have been dry. There had been a drought. No water there. So you could have gone to the Mediterranean Sea. You would have seen that. But that would have taken a couple of days. You'd have had to walk there, get your big jugs, fill them up, and walk back. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in that moment, he calls for water. And the first time, the people bring it and he pours it in. The only logical conclusion you can come to is that as these people gathered around the mountain, the nation of Israel, they would have brought water for the journey. 
for their families, for their animals, for themselves, whatever they needed to get to the mountain, they would have brought what they needed to get there and to get back. So the water they use, can you imagine how precious water is when there's a drought? It's like gold. It's like better than gold because if I'm dead, I can't spend gold, but I got to have some water. Come on, somebody. And so you understand the value and the preciousness of this water. And then Elijah says, look, I need you to come and pour your water in. And it doesn't say one time, doesn't say twice, but three times he asked the people to pour the water in this trench. Why would he ask, ask three times? Because these jokers didn't give their offering the first time. Come on, somebody. <laughs> He's like, pass that plate again. Come on, somebody, pass it. No, no, that ain't enough water. Pass that plate again. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making that up. But it sounds like something. <laughs> Them jokers ain't giving. I'm, I'm going to do it again. But here's what we know. The Bible says they poured the water on the altar. And then it says that he prayed something short. God, show your glory. Show them you're real. And fire from heaven falls, consumes the sacrifice, and laps up all the water. And a miracle takes place in that moment. And what we know is this, that water represented an offering. They're giving something that is valuable. Think about the radical sacrifice and the radical obedience. When the man of God spoke, they obeyed. How many know that is a radical thing to do? So, but here's, here's what, let's play this thing out. So then we have these guys, they're, they're going home from this journey. God has, fire has fallen. God has proven himself. Can you imagine them going home now and saying, okay, man, thanks, Elijah. We're now thirsty. We don't have any water to get home. Well, what does Elijah do? He goes and he prays. What does he pray for? He prays for rain. See, they had their cups full, but they poured their cups out. Now he's saying, God, I'm asking you to fill their cup back up. So he's praying, God, send the rain. God, send the rain. And we know when you read the story, they, they go up. His servant says the first time, no, I don't say anything. So Elijah, he doesn't quit. He prays again. Second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth, seventh time, the servant comes back and says, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And Elijah said, here it comes. This is the rain begins to send them out. And can you imagine the Israelites who had sacrificed so much individually are about to experience a miracle corporately. And they're walking home in the rain of heaven begins to fall on their heads and their faces and they open up their mouths and their eyes. What they had given was so little in comparison, but it was all that they had in their hands. Now God opens up the windows of heaven and sends so much water they can't even contain it that there was a miracle that took place because of their sacrifice. It's amazing when you think about it. So now the drought, because of their obedience, because of their radical sacrifice, the drought is over and they get to experience something in their life that they would have never experienced otherwise. And here's what's interesting about the story too. Look, the fire didn't fall until the water was poured out. The rain didn't come until the sacrifice and the offering was given. And so in our lives, we have to understand God is no respecter of persons, but he is a respecter of principle. That God, there are moments in my life where I'm going to have to give something that costs me. Why? Because there's a miracle that's in the way that you have prepared for me. And so many times it's easy to judge and say, well, they got it, but I didn't. Why don't we go back and look and see if they obeyed God in the time of the sacrifice? And my prayer is let the rain fall. Let the fire come down from heaven in this church, on our lives, in this place. 
Second thing is you got to pour out your cup. Radical obedience, radical sacrifice. And today when we give, that's what we're doing. We're just, we're pouring out our cup. And it's up to you as to whether or not you give God a splash or whether you do something that's radical. Nobody makes you do that. It's all up to you. God, am I coming to you with my whole heart? God, am I coming to you with my best? God, am I coming to you with what I feel you have spoken to my heart? Look, if you want the fire to fall, you got to pour your water out. You want the reign of God in your life, you're going to have to give things away. You're going to have to sacrifice. And look, it's not about the amount. It's about the sacrifice. Even with the offering, you know, I was thinking, some of you, $500 is like, wow, that's radical sacrifice. Radical. And here's what I'd say. That's awesome. But you have to decide what you're going to do. Some of you, it's thousands of dollars. That's radical sacrifice. It's like, wow, God, that would be radical. Some of you, it'd take $100,000 to be radical sacrifice. This is what I know. It's not about the amount. It's about the sacrifice in your life. If you want the rain to fall and the fire of God to fall in your life, you got to do what is radical. And it doesn't make sense. You get, get quiet on me. Come on, pastor, you preach it. I got you. It doesn't make sense. Right? I, I get it. I'm telling you something that I have lived out. Someone says, how in the world do you have such a generous church? We've been pouring out the water. From day one, we have given to missionaries. We gave 18% of what comes into this church last year away, even as we were looking for property to purchase. Why? Because we just understand, God, I'm pouring it out. When do I pour it out? When God speaks to me. And if I will radically obey and radically sacrifice, I know God's radical blessing will follow my life in this church. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to pour out your water in the middle of a drought. Doesn't make sense to pour out all you had for your family when your family's looking at you eye to eye. But yet the man of God said, pour it out. And they did. And the drought was broken. If you want something unexplainable in life, you've got to do what seems radical. So are you willing to pour out your cup? You're willing to bring your very best to God. It's what we pour out that God multiplies. In fact, we were, I was telling the staff even recently, I was, I was traveling on a trip and I felt like the Lord said to give an extravagant amount from this church uh, to a church planting organization, ARC, the, the, the place we're a part of. And it was interesting because I argued with God. I said, God, you know we're in the building fund. You know, we're trying to buy this land. And, and you know, you, how many know when, when God speaks to you and it's radical, we got all kinds of reasons why it don't make sense. It's like, well, God, that, that just ain't responsible. Just, are you sure? It's, and, and what I felt like, this is what the Lord spoke to me. I can't multiply what's not sown. So you're holding on to seed. We got our cup full of water, and God's just saying, will you pour it out? Will you pour it out? Will you? I know it's crazy. I know it's, but you're looking for radical. Like, we got to have radical. God, if we're going to change this world, I need radical. Doesn't make sense. I want to encourage you to stay the course. Verse 10, it says, while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. And here's really the warning with that, is that as you begin to give radical, as you begin to step out in radical obedience... The enemy's going to come and try to get you to stop. He's going to say, look, you can't afford that. You can't do that. What about this? It don't make sense. Let me tell you, heaven's economy never makes sense. 
It doesn't ever make sense. And that's the faith walk. And so here you can imagine they're sacrificing and the, and the Philistines are about to attack them. But look at this. It says, on that day. Everybody say that day. So I don't know about any other days. But on this day, the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed out before the Israelites. This day, God went to battle for the Israelites because of the radical sacrifice they had just given. That day, what do you believe in God for? What is it that you're asking God for? What are you contending for? What are you longing for? Today could be that day for you. So you think about it. Look, they examined their hearts. They poured out their cups. But you got to understand that there is a process to the promise. You can't just show up and get the promise. There's a process. There's a process. We've got to examine our hearts. We've got to pour out our cup. And then when that happens, the Lord will begin to work on our behalf. They pursued the Philistines and defeated them. And here's what's interesting about this story. And I'm, I'm going to get ready to close in just a second. What's interesting, if you don't read the rest of this story, you can begin to believe that God randomly pours out his blessings, that God randomly gives territory, that God randomly pushes back the hand of the enemy, because that's what the enemy wants you to believe, that it's random, that, that like God's got favorites and you're not one of them, that God, they're more spiritually mature than you. have got nothing to do with how long you've been saved. It's how deep you go. And so here what we've got to understand is it's not this random. God is not a God of random. The truth is it's because they're responding to God through obedience. The truth is it's because they respond to God through their faithfulness. They have a pure heart and they're pouring their cup out. That's what God responds to. So you've got to examine your heart. You've got to pour out your cup. And then here's the last thing. You've got to expect God to move. Expect God to do it. God will do it because he said he would do it. The promises of God, remember, they're yes and amen. Not one promise from the Lord has ever fallen short or failed. But his promises, you've got to understand this, are conditional and optional. Conditional in the fact that there is instructions before you receive it. Optional in the fact of whether or not I will participate in those instructions. And if you stay faithful to the promise, the process, I promise you, you'll realize the promise. And I love what it says here. It says, you know, Samuel brought the sacrifice. The people brought the offering. And, you know, I, I love that because I want you to know Phyllis and I are a part of what we're asking you to do. We're never going to ask you to give and not be a part of it. We're never going to ask to pour out your cup and not be a part of pouring out our cup. See, we believe that the same God that filled our cup after we had poured it out, he can fill that cup up again. And we've seen him do it time and time again. And we, we pray and, you know, I don't know if you're like us. Sometimes we got a number the first one and we're like, well, that's what I can do. Second time you're like, oh, I don't know if that's God because that one's going to really hurt. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, God, I don't even know if that one is wise. And I just go back. Do I want to be safe and wise or do I want to be sacrificial and obedient? Knowing that God can do what only God can do. The same God that filled my cup the first time, he can fill it up again. You know, I don't tell you that to pat myself on the back or to make you. I just want you to know I actually practice what I preach. 
then I'm not coming up here and asking you to do something that we hadn't done ourselves, and we're going to continue to do it. I, I was thinking about a couple of things. You know, my whole life has been built on this principle. Now, I didn't know that it was just pouring my cup out. Like, I feel like I was able to articulate it today in a way that you can get it. But, but I remember even in 2010, it was the last month of 2010, it was December. I was pastoring another church in Stafford and wasn't making a lot of money. And Phyllis and I had been renting over there in River Park West. And we, we had a home over there. I'd never forget. It was in December. And I'm driving. And I'm right in front of the rec center on Williams Way. And for some reason, I just felt like I connected with God. Have you ever felt like you just connect with God in a moment? I don't feel like it all the time. I wish I did. And <laughs> that'd be awesome. I don't have a hotline to God like, ooh, what's up? But in this moment... I felt God hear my prayer of, God, I want to have a house. I'm tired of renting. And I didn't think anything of it. And shortly after, about a week later, somebody called me. And I've told this story from a disciple now in Sulphur Springs. And uh, said, we've heard about you. We'd love for you to come and speak to our youth at this Disciple Now weekend. And I'm like, well, praise God. And then one of the greatest things he said later was, and we're going to pay you. Come on, somebody. In ministry, that's a big deal. And he actually told me how much he was going to pay me. He said, I'm going to pay you $1,500. I about shout. I'm like, what? You know, I'm broke. $1,500 is like a million, you know. We're just scratching by. And I'm like, well, praise God. How many, you know, sometimes you say, we want you to preach. We'll give you a love offering. You get like $12. You're like, oh, no. This one, I knew what we were getting. <clears throat> so I told Phyllis, I said, man, I'm really excited. And it wasn't just a few days later. I felt like the Lord said, I want you to sow that seed, that offering, the whole thing. And I want you to give it to the pastor that leads that church. I want, you just, I want you to receive it from the church, and I want you to sign it over to the pastor. So what I didn't know is this is what God was telling me. I want you to, I want you to pour your cup out. I just want you to pour it out. How much? God, can I just give him a splash? Like, what about $20? God, $20. Five. I got five on it. Something, God. Just, I'm a broke minister. Come on, God. Please help, help a brother out. You know what I'm talking about? Like, come on, Lord. Now, that's not what God said. He said, well, you want a splash or you want a radical miracle? So I didn't do it to get it. I just said, okay, God, it's all yours anyway. I'm broke anyway. Come on, somebody. I'm like, so I asked Phyllis, kind of hoping she wouldn't agree because she, you know, we got two babies. We're about to have our third Addison at that time. And I didn't even remember the prayer that I prayed, but I knew God was asking me to pour my cup out. So we did it, and it's interesting how 1,500 in your heart is easy to give away, but how many know 1,500 in your hands? Mm, it's a little bit different. He passed that check over, and I had written a letter because I knew that I, if I saw it in my hands, I'd be really tempted. So I gave him the letter, and I said, here, let me sign this over, and I gave it to him. He said, what are you doing? I, I don't need that. I said, I don't care if you need it. God told me to give it. And so I gave it, and you never know if he did or didn't need it. But I know this, I needed it. And so lo and behold, I didn't think anything of it. Some friends said, hey, go look at a property over in Bondbrook. We were looking for a house. I'm like, it's too expensive. We can't afford it. We, you know, we're just, we're barely making it. And she said, there's a foreclosure I want you to go look at. I said, okay. I told Phyllis, but yeah, you know, it's the first day it's been on the market. They usually wait. If you know anything about foreclosures, I was in real estate. They usually wait till they get all the bids. And so by the time you get it, it ain't even that great of a deal. And so we saw it. I'm like, man, I love it. Well, what can you afford? Well, this is what we can afford. So our realtor put in the offer. That day they accepted it. Thousands less than what we could actually afford. This is back in 2011. 
And here's what's amazing. We ended up closing on that property. You remember, we're broke, man. We just, less than $1,000 to close on the property. I'm telling you numbers because some of you are in this place. Like, you got it. You understand it. And, and you're like, man, it was, and we were paying less for a mortgage than we paid for rent. And that is the house that God used to birth this church out of. What were we doing? We were just, just pouring out a cup. Didn't even know that's just pouring it out. Just pouring it out. Just pouring it out. I mean, even this year, it, it, I can tell you story after story. Phyllis and I, we launched a church out of our house. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. You got 80 people in your house and you're doing these interest meetings. And for three years, we didn't have offices. Everybody came to my house and it was like, it was awesome. But I mean, you know, 80 people in your house can do some damage. Like carpets are ruined, uh, you know, holes in the wall. Kids are in the bedrooms. One point my kid said, I don't really like everybody in my bedroom because they would rip the curtains off. And, you know, and nobody fixes it. Everybody's like, yo, pastor, see you later. What's up? It's awesome. And uh, no big deal. It helped us launch this church. And this last year feels like I'd really like to have the house fixed, paint some walls, fix some holes, do some things. And so we're saving some money to do that. No big deal. And then legacy offering comes along. Good Lord for legacy. And the Lord speaks to us and says, I want you to give what you were going to use to fix the house. I want you to give that. What are we doing? Just pouring the cup. Are you sure, God? Yeah, pour the cup. So pour the cup. And it wasn't a week later, somebody gave the money to remodel and fix our entire house. It's interesting. Could we have done it? Uh, we, we could have done it. Taking us a little bit of time. But I feel like it's because God says, look, when you pour out your cup of radical obedience, radical sacrifice, I'm going to pour out a cup of radical blessing. And some of you, this is the challenge. The presence of God has been with you, but the freedom of God has never been real in your life. And that's because money's been this hold, your, your whole mentality. You think it's about the money. God ain't looking at your account trying to feed the homeless, trying to feed the poor. He's trying to put radical blessing in your life. And as a church, if we're going to go to that next level, listen, every one of us have to get to the place where we live this radical life that, God, you got my heart. The stuff doesn't have it. And that's what today's all about. In fact, I was going to stand up here and tell you how much we need it. You know, I'm not embarrassed to tell you. I'll give you numbers. I know where we're at. We've got the building committee. They've got all, you know, several properties. We're, we've got one that's really strong, and I'm excited to tell you about it. But I felt like God said, don't give numbers today because it ain't about numbers. It's about heart. So that's what I say. Listen, just ask God. Begin to just say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm all yours. Radical, radical, whatever it is. And then just obey. And we're going to celebrate what God does. Amen. Bow your head and close your eyes. I want to pray this morning for you. God's in this place and I feel like he's working on some of your hearts that, you know, we're talking about taking steps of faith and sacrifice, but the truth is you got to take a step, a step of faith to receive Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Maybe you're here right now and you know that your heart is far from God. Your life is far from God. Well, the truth is, in Romans 3.23, it says that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And it's that sin that separates us from God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And that's why you feel like you're dying on the inside. So you might even say that, man, I feel like I'm just dead on the inside. Well, that's the sin that, that we've been living in. David said you were born in sin, born in iniquity, you were conceived. 
And so what we understand is apart from God, that sin separates us from God. But that's what salvation is all about. Uh, Ephesians 2.8.9 says that we have been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. So we're saved by grace through faith. And that's God's grace that's pulling on your heart right now. And it's not about you being good enough because you'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough. Jesus paid the price. It was his life that gave his blood as the sacrifice for the sin of humanity. And that's the beauty of Christianity. It's simply saying, God, I believe. And and that's what Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, that if we confess Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you'll be saved. What's that mean? You'll have a salvation moment. You'll never be the same. You can turn away from your old life and now experience brand new life. And there are some of you here in this place, that's what you need. You need a new life. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, I'm not going to embarrass you. But if that's you, I wonder if you'd just be bold enough just to raise your hand. I'm going to count to three. You just raise it up, slip it up, and hold it up for just a second. I want to see who I'm praying for. One, come on, if that's you, just get ready. Two, you need new life. I'm ready to receive it right now. Raise your hand on three. Raise it up right now. Yes, 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 yes. All over this place. It's amazing. You put your hands down. Church, I want us to pray this together. Say this, say, Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on a cross for me. God, I believe you raised him from the dead. I'm asking you to forgive me. Give me a new life. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your power. Jesus, be my Lord and be my Savior right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, worship God this morning. We love you, God.